I want to talk to you this morning about a subject we've talked about before here. I'll call it the proper order, because that's what the Bible calls it in different translations about doing things. And it speaks to one of those problems that we have in Christianity that are so unlike the common culture that we live in. One of the attributes of what it means to be a Christian and a Bible believer is understanding and living by the concept of the proper order. Now, we're going to be talking from the Old Testament today. Uh, and I forgot my... I need those probably just to... I don't usually use notes, but... I didn't include everything in... We, we went to a show last night at the Sunrise Theater, Judy, Karen, and I, a, a play, a one-man play. Um, this guy was C.S. Lewis, and he did a performance for <laughs> over an hour or more, quoting, and he just acted as if he, he sounded like C.S. Lewis, looked like C.S. Lewis. He's an American actor. I don't know how he did it. But he was giving some of his talks that he had written about over the years, a English philosopher and apologist, theologian, so forth, as actually was an English literature professor. It was incredible, and the, one of the most, it was really good. And so if you have a chance to go see that, I don't know how long it's going to be in town. It's called Outward and Upward, I think, but how long it's going to be in town, I don't know. But it was, it was worth the money, and it wasn't cheap to go see this play. And uh, it was amazing because this fellow, he's at, le- at least as old as me, stood up there and on this stage and talked for well over an hour, quoting C.S. Lewis and all these other works, never missed a beat, and acted the whole time in an accent. I don't, you know, I don't know how people, well, when you watch the news, you wonder how people that are that old do it because you see them failing all the time. But, but I don't know how the man mentally could do this, but he did. It was really, really good and really incredible. So, yeah, I need notes sometimes. But let's talk about this situation of the proper. I want to refer you to um, the book of 1 Samuel as a background story. Here in the book of 1 Samuel, it says, uh, The Israelites are being oppressed by their enemies, the Philistines. The Philistines were along the coast of what's now Israel or Palestine, toward the north and and and. Uh, on the eastern Mediterranean Sea there. They are probably descended from perhaps a branch of the ancient Phoenicians, seagoing people, the Mediterranean region, the Philistines and the Pharisees and the Phoenicians are related to each other from what we know even genetically. And they were always at odds with Israel trying to make incursion into the land and Israel was having to oppose them from early on, the tribes were. But the word of the, the word of and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to, to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped in Aphek. When the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel, and when they joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about four thousand men of the army in the field. And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. Now, apparently at this point in time, Israel had not been keeping the law as well as they should. 
But all of a sudden they decide that they're going to get their abracadabra magic rabbit's foot for good luck. And they're going to go get the Ark of the Covenant and bring it there so that God will be with them because they got their magic talisman and their magic symbol. And people think today that they can get magic symbols or even just saying the name Jesus is a magic wand to cure all kind of problems. And the Bible shows us over and over that's not how God works. And so the people sent to Shiloh, it says, and they brought that they might bring from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts. You know, the one he told them to build in the wilderness overlaid. You know, the one that's now in a warehouse in Washington, D.C., that Indiana Jones put there, that one, that ark, that's the one we're talking about here. <clears throat> or it is in Ethiopia. And he said they wanted to bring this ark of the covenant of the Lord who dwells between the cherubim. That's the two angelic figures on top of the ark. And the Shekinah glory of God it said would dwell in between the wings of this cherubim on top of the ark, which is called the mercy seat. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And so when the Ark of the Covenant came into the camp, all Israel shouted loudly and the earth shook. The only problem with this was that it didn't work. Israel was still defeated in battle, even though they had the Ark with them. They were defeated in battle. I think it's because they weren't really relying on God. They just wanted this magic Ark, and when the Philistines saw this, they fought even harder, uh, in this case. And the Philistines took the ark to Ashdod. They stole the ark and took it with them, thinking, well, now we've got their God, so we can defeat them. See, they, they were pagans. They thought the ark was a God. And so if they take the God, they'll put it in their temple with their gods, and they'll have all the power. Didn't work out that way. They broke out in boils. All kind of bad things began to happen to the Philistines. And so they decided, we're going to get rid of this thing. It's bad. And so they hooked it on a cart, strapped it all down, put some oxen in front of it, whipped the oxen, pointed them in the right direction, and whipped the oxen, and they went off toward Israel. They just sent the thing away from them. My mother said she had a goat. When she was a kid, she had a pet goat. I forgot the name of this thing. And it was a kind of goat that she said, you could point the goat wherever you wanted to go and pull his tail, and he would run until he hit something. <laughs> Her brothers had a lot of fun with this goat. They were older than her. They had a lot of fun pointing this thing at people and things and even her. And he would just run until he hit something. Well, maybe that's what that kind of reminds me of the story of the oxen just walking away down the road back to Israel. And finally somebody got it and, and took, took it in. Now, we find the ark a little bit later on, though. David decides he wants to do God's will. He wants to follow God. And he has trouble with the ark. He's trying to serve God, but he has trouble with the ark because he didn't respect the proper order of how things should be done. But so David wants to send away and bring this ark to the city of David, Jerusalem, and he has trouble. The background of this, I think, you can go to the New Testament and see some of the background problem that he was having. Jesus said, and speak to the woman at the well, God is a spirit. And they who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So God is not a material being like we are with a a body of some sort. He's just spirit, just that which cannot be seen. And if you want to worship this spirit, you have to do so in spirit and in truth. Once again, two non-material things. 
This is why materialists, those who believe that there are people that will tell you, I only believe in what I can taste, touch, feel, and smell. You know, They're only going to believe their five senses. I think I left one out, I don't know what it is, but they're only going to believe their five senses. And if they can't touch it or taste it or feel it or smell it or whatever else they can do, then they don't believe in it. So I, do you believe in love then? That they don't, you know, they don't believe. Do you believe in goodness? You believe in truth? You know, you can't touch, taste, or feel any of those things, but are they real? Well, we've talked about that in some recent sermons. That's a good question. Are they real? Just because you can't put it in the test tube and perform an experiment or do a double blind study on it, does that mean it's not real because you can't? Well, a materialist would say, no, it's not real. We can't prove any of that, so I don't believe in it. Well, if that's the case, it makes sense that you don't believe in God then because God's a spirit. But if you want to worship this God, you must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, there's a lot of debate about what the two, the word spirit and truth refer to here. Some say in spirit means that our worship is not carnal. It's not based on physical things per se, but it is an act that occurs in the spirit that corresponds to God's spirit. And then the idea of it being in truth means that it's according to what God has said. It's according to God's will. It is true. Others say that means it's it truly from our hearts, not hypocritical or phony. I kind of go with the first meaning there in my own understanding of this. It's according to truth. We know from the very beginning of beginning of human history, Cain and Abel, the sons of Adam and Eve, brought forth sacrifices to offer up to God in the book of Genesis in chapter 4 and 5. And, and we see there right away that one of the men's sacrifice was acceptable, that is, Abel's, because it was offered by faith, the book of Hebrews says. The other man, uh, Cain, brought of the grain of, his, of the field, and his sacrifice was not accepted, it was rejected. And I think the reason it was rejected is because it was not according to truth. It wasn't what God said to do. Cain did what he wanted to do, not by faith, meaning you have to have a command from the Lord to act. The only way you can act in faith is if you have a command from the Lord. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So you can't do anything in faith if God hasn't told you what to do and you respond to that. When you just do something for God that God hasn't told you what to do, you're doing it because you want to do it, not because God told you to do it. It can't be by faith. It's only by faith that God has talked, told you what to do. And so when you worship God, you must worship him in truth, according to the way that God has determined for it to be done, not the way that we decide it should be done. Uh, down through time, and it's true today, most people worship God the way they want to. What they choose and the way that they decide is a good way to do it. What makes them feel good in their spirit, in their spirit they worship him, and in their, in, with their truth, what they want. This is unacceptable to God. Unacceptable. If he's truly God, you must worship him the way he decides to be worshipped. And he's told us that, that in the Bible. And so this involves both motive and method, as it were. The motive of worship is important. Why do we do things? There are people that'll come into some of things like this, they don't even want to be here, and so we sing, and they may mouth a few words and go along, but they're not even, they're not worshiping, because they're not worshiping from their spirit to God. They're just mouthing words or going through some. You go to some churches, and they stand, they sit, they do this, they kneel, and people do this, go through the motions, but their hearts aren't in that at all. That's not worship, because it doesn't come from our spirit to God's spirit. And then there, then there is the method. That's the actual ways to be done. You see, 
So people have a lot of ways that they want to worship God and Jesus Christ, and they worship a lot of things, but are they doing it the way that God says to do it? Now, that's the question. We're not going to take the time this morning to apply this right now. We'll come back to this perhaps, but I want to make the general point about this problem that's creeping up here in David's life. It involved these two things. I think we're going to see that David's motive was right in what he did. He wanted to do something good. Maybe the earlier people who went to get the ark didn't do it right for the wrong reasons. But David was doing it for the right reason, but his method was wrong. His method was wrong. And so, in 1 Chronicles 13, David says, And let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we have not inquired at it since the days of Saul. So for a long time, maybe 30, 40 years, the ark had sat unused, un, no sacrifices offered, no blood sprinkled on it, nothing. They had neglected it. David says this isn't right to neglect the ark of the covenant. God's very clear in the law of Moses what we're to do with this. Then all the assembly said that they would do so for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. Now you read down a little further in 1 Chronicles 13. They, they make preparations to move this ark from, I think it's Kiriath-Jerim to Jerusalem or the city of David. And so then they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab and Uzzah and Ohio. And Uzzah and Ohio drove the cart. So here's the oxen. Tells you about all the oxen and the new cart, new oxen as it were. I don't think they've ever been for one, I, if I, I haven't read this text, uh, I can't remember the text at the moment, but I don't think they've ever been used before. And they go along to bring the ark home. Looks like a good plan. I guess they even used those either bungee cords or those kind of ratchet straps, took it on there, you know, in their own way. They had all figured out what they're supposed to do. The trouble was, even though their motive was right in what they were doing, their method was all wrong because they didn't find out what God said to do. What did what did God said about that? Well, go back to the book of Exodus. Exodus 25, Moses gave the law. Here's what God said. It was available for David to read. Any of them could have read it, but they didn't read it. They said they loved God, but his word was neglected. They didn't read. For you, you shall cast four rings of gold for it, speaking of the ark, and put them in its four corners. Two rings shall be on one side, two rings on the other side, and you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark that the ark may be carried by them. This is explicitly how God says the ark is to be moved. Not by picking it up, not by handling it, not by putting on an ox cart, but by using these poles. Well, God didn't say not to put it on an ox cart. He didn't say not to do that. Isn't that how people decide what they're going to do with God? Well, God doesn't say not to do that. God told them what to do, and we're going to see what God thought about that in just a moment. So here is the statement. So a person that says they have good motives about following God reads this statement, and what's their reaction going to be? That's what you got to think about. What's the reaction going to be once you read what God says you ought to do or ought not to do? Your reaction determines a lot of things, and that's the problem of us with the proper order. Now, you go over then to Numbers chapter um, 
Numbers chapter 4, he goes into this a little bit more detail. It says here in Numbers, and when the camp prepares to journey, this that's when they're still in the wilderness, Aaron and his son shall come and they shall take down the covering veil and cover the ark of the testimony with it. So they take down the veil, cover the ark, it's not exposed, it's going to be covered up. And who's going to do it? Aaron and his sons are going to do this. Well, it doesn't say that the tribe of Judah can't do it, but it tells you who is to do it. And then you go, it goes on to say down in verse 15 of that chapter, Numbers 4. And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is set to go, then the sons of Kohath, he even gets more specific about the sons of Aaron, now that's the sons of Kohath, shall come to carry them, but they shall not touch any holy thing lest they die. These are the things in the tabernacle of meeting which the sons of Kohath are to carry. So they can take it all down. They can put it where it goes. They're touching it. But once it's in place to go, they can't touch it. Lest they die. Now, we're going to see that David prepared this cart thinking he was doing some great thing for God as a man after God's own heart. He prepares the cart, the oxen. It all looks spectacular. All the people are ready. The trumpets are playing. The people start on their way. And yet you've got to ask, what was God's response to this problem? Well, here's what he did. And when they came to Chidon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to hold the ark, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and he struck him because he put his hand to the ark and he died there before God. The oxen stumbled, implying that the ark was going to tip and fall off perhaps. Uzzah puts out his hand to stop it, touches the ark, instantly dies. Boom. What do you suppose the reaction of the people was to that? Well, what would you think if you saw that? Well, this man is very sincere in what he's doing. He's got a good heart. He just wants to please the Lord. He's just trying to help. God struck him dead. Well, I'll tell you what happened. There's this uproar. And the truth is, David didn't like this. I'm sure Uzzah didn't like it either, and Uzzah's family, but we didn't don't hear much about that. But uh, uh, the other the other priest there, Ohio, I'm sure he was a little bit startled, and he backed up when he saw that. What was David's reaction to God's, to God's response? God says, you're not doing it the way I want. He struck him dead. Now, David reacts to that. Just like we do when God says to us, or we read, this is what you're supposed to be doing. Whether it's about our moral lives, or church work, or worship, some other thing. We react to what God says, and whether we like it or not, we, we let God know whether we like it or not. A lot of people don't like what the Bible says. It's very clear. It's obvious. It's almost too obvious to state that Oh, well, huge numbers of people, vast high percentages of people do not really like what the Bible says. They talk about the Bible, but when it comes down to liking what it really says in the New Testament about them and their life and the church, they do not like it. And therefore, they make up their own rules about how they're going to act. All of us have probably been guilty of doing this in some way or another. We react to God's word. So David became angry. 
because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. I love that. It was an outbreak. Here is, here is God. The picture here, here is God. He's containing himself with these people because they won't follow his law, even though they're his people. He's containing himself as best he can. And then this happens and you see an outbreak. He just won't contain himself anymore and strikes this man dead. God puts up with a lot when you consider his holiness, his word, his patience with men. It's just, uh, it's staggering to think of how he tolerates what humans have done and are continuing to do every day against him. And the words they speak in their high-minded, lofty intellectualism, what the words they speak against Jehovah, it's just very difficult to see how he contains himself. And then when you and I who say we know better and say we love him, when we just do what we want to do in our private life or something like that, it's a wonder. People say, oh, well, God should... God should just strike all, strike these sinners dead. This is a good idea. Is it? Is it really a good idea? How many, I wouldn't be preaching to anybody today. And I wouldn't be preaching because I wouldn't be here if God just struck sinners dead whenever they did what they wanted to do. This was an outbreak. This was something that God would not contain anymore because his wrath was against what they had done. They were ignoring him when he had told them what he wanted and he struck them. And you would think he'd be more patient because, after all, they were trying to do a good thing. But this is, this is the point of this lesson. That's the point of this lesson. You would think, I've told you before, I tried to get that website years ago, youwouldthink.com, because I could make a lot of good stuff on there. Youwouldthink.com. Funny stuff, religious stuff, altogether. You would think that God would contain himself just because their motives were good. That's the point of this story. He didn't. And David was afraid of God that day, saying, how can I bring the ark of God to me? Now, this is evidence of David's goodness. Oh, we shouldn't be afraid of God. God's a loving God. We shouldn't be afraid of God. I recommend that you be afraid of God. Yes, God's a loving God. But you can't approach him just any old way you want, with any old attitude you want, doing any old thing you want. And that's the reason that this story is in the Old Testament. There's reasons why God records this, not a bunch of other stuff he could record. There's a reason for that. So David was angry with God. He didn't understand what God was doing. He wondered about it. He couldn't couldn't figure it out. He didn't understand why this man had to die. But then he became afraid. And I think that's why God did it. Exactly why God did this. So that him and Israel would be afraid to disobey God. Are we afraid of God? No. He's our best buddy. That's what people look at him. He's our best buddy. And so we can just say and do whatever we want to God. He's just supposed to like it. God is not a human, but he's a person. And he like he is what he is. His nature determines the nature of the whole universe. It can't be any other way because it's according to his nature. And we need to make sure that we're in line with that, not making up our own thoughts about what that might be. Now, in looking at this then, you see there's a few lessons that can be learned, many lessons to be learned. One of them perhaps is found in Matthew 7. Now, here's God's son, Jesus, speaking. And he says, these are familiar passages to you. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, 
that he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye who practice lawlessness. And so here we have people that will say, Lord, Lord. Boy, you hear this all over the airwaves and in churches. People calling on the name of Jesus over and over and over again. Calling on the name of the Lord. And Jesus says, that doesn't necessarily mean a thing to me. A lot of people will call my name, but they will only do what they want to do in their life. In their religion and in their life, they only do what they want to do. So he says, the only one who makes a difference that will enter the kingdom of heaven is the one who is willing to do what my Father, do the will of my Father which is in heaven. Notice then you have all these evangelical preachers tell you, you can't do anything to please God. Well, there Jesus says, that's the only way you can get into heaven is do the will of the Father. And they say, no, you can't do anything. I'm kind of confused by that. I know it's because I'm ignorant, but... Um, the language confuses me because Jesus says you have to do His will. Many will say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in Your name? So they think they've done religious. They, they've cast out demons, they say. They've done many wonders in Your name. Now all those things are not necessarily bad, but what the point of the story is, they were all done not in Jesus' name, but in their name, in their own name. They did them when they wanted to and the way they wanted to on their terms to the people that they wanted to do them to. They're doing it not in Jesus' name, not because he commanded it, and when he commanded it, they're doing it because they wanted to. And that's why he, in the end, he says they were lawless. Anomia. The word nomia, or forms of that in Greek, is law. Ah, on the front of a Greek word, means not. So you'd have, instead of the uncola, you have the acola in Greek. It's not cola. It's un. Not law. So they lived a life not according to the law of God. They did what they wanted to do. Lawlessness. Now we usually, I think the King James used the word iniquity, which is an old version of that concept of being without law. It doesn't mean just terrible, terrible wickedness of the worst kind, like serial killers and rapists and stuff. It can mean that. But what it really strikes at is something more common among human beings. And that's the idea that I can do what I want. That I live by my own law. We're supposed to make up our own law. I live by my own rules. It's a very subtle thing. We can get upset about the the secularists in our society and all the woke people making up their own laws and living by their own laws, following their own heart. But it, it's very simple and very easy for people to call themselves Christians to fall into this, this place, and they do. That's why we have so many denominations in the world. That's why we have all of these different denominations, all of these different religions, all claiming to be, Lord, Lord, are we not following you? And Jesus says, I don't know who you are because you're doing what you want to do. That's part of the point of this church and what we try to teach here. Whether we succeed or not is not a, not something um, I don't have. That's for the Lord to decide. But the point is to reject all of that human thinking about the way things ought to be and only follow what the scriptures say as best we can. And we may not always accomplish that, but that's the point. 
Rather than accepting the general view that whatever I decide religiously to call out Lord, Lord, and I do that, that's all fine with God. The point of the story is it's not fine with God. It's not right. And so it happens both to worldly secular people who don't care for Jehovah at all. They want to put the stamp of approval. I mean, the governor of California is now quoting Jesus' words about loving your neighbor on billboards across the United States advocating that people have abortions and come to California to get abortions. And his scripture at the bottom, he doesn't even believe in this scripture, but he uses it against you that says love your neighbor as yourself. Lord, Lord, we're not doing good things? The same thing. Crawling out to, calling on the name of Jesus to sanctify what he wants to do. Matthew Henry, an old commentator, said it will not suffice to say of that which is ill done that it was well meant. It's not good enough to say about something that's ill done, done wrongly, that it was well meant. Well, I meant well when I destroyed everything, you know. I tried to tell my dad that when I had a wreck in his car one time. Well, I didn't mean to wreck it. (laughs) It was almost new, and I... Uh, yeah, I don't remember the how, how it happened, but I damaged the front end pretty good. Or no, I tell you, the first one was I just backed out of a parking place wrong, and I put a little crease in that you know that wood paneling on the side of that old kind of wood station wagon. You know, only it wasn't wood; it was just vinyl over the you know. But my dad acted like it was wood, <laughs> and I came home and I showed him that. I can't believe I did that, and and uh, yeah, he wasn't very happy. Well, I didn't mean to. He looked at me with that look like, you didn't mean to, huh? Oh, that makes it okay. That's fine. You know, it costs $60 to fix that. Can you believe it? 60 whole dollars to fix that dent. It would have been 500 today at the very least before I could even think about getting that dent fixed. Anyway, but no, to say that you meant well, we need to be more mature than the people around us, more thoughtful, more based, as they would say. Meaning well is not good enough. It's a start. Because there's a lot of people that don't mean well. Meaning well is a start. But you need to do better. You need to do what's right. And not just imagine that because you want it to be good, it's going to be. That's how people end up in very, very bad marriages. Because they mean well, but they don't think it through. But And so David learned the lesson. It's probably ahead of the... He, David got angry and afraid and he stepped back and thought about this and by think about it I meant he went to the word of God think about it to some people means I'm going to go uh, you know pour me a drink and think about this the way I want to think about it no he thought about what God really wanted done here he understood that being afraid was the proper answer. And so, in First Chronicles 15, 1 and 2, it says, And David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. And David said, No one may carry the ark of God but the Levites, for the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of God and to minister before him forever. And he said to them, you are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves, you and your brethren, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord of God of Israel to the place I have prepared for. Now he was the king. 
But David was such a man that understood that God had said the priests were to do this and a certain family of the priests were to, He wasn't to touch it. They weren't even to touch it after a certain point. David may have meant well by bringing it up. And you can say he brought it up, but he didn't touch it. He backed away and said, the Levites need to sanctify yourselves because that's what the Lord has said in the law. For because you did not do it in the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not consult him about the proper order. And so I got the name of a sermon out of that verse. He broke out against us because we did not do it right and did not do it according to the proper order. And so the priests... And the Levites sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord of God of Israel. And the children of the Lord of the Levites bore the ark of God on their shoulders by its poles, as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. David read all this and told them how to, what they should do and reminded them of what God said. And so they read it and they did exactly what he said that they, they should do. Just like that illustration shows. Now this is an important story, I think. And us to, for us to understand how we ought to relate to the Lord and to our own life. And so you can draw a few conclusions. The problem wasn't that the oxen stumbled or the cart shook. That really wasn't the problem. Those kind of things are going to happen. There should never have been a cart and oxen in the first place. A lot of things we get worked up over, we concern ourselves with, well, if I could just do this or this, you know. So here are people that don't consider consider the kind of person they should take for a wife or a husband, and they worry about, well, I got married at 20 instead of 21. That was the problem. I know people that got married at 16 and did fine. We're worrying about something that isn't the problem. okay? Because it's not got anything to do with the Word of God. So it, there shouldn't have been the ox and the cart. So the solution is not to build a better cart or get more sure-footed animals. That's how we want to fix religious problems. Get a better car. And that's kind of the history, for example. Well, I'm going to die. Too much time. But, but what we need to do is to do God's work in God's way. God's work in our life. God's work in the church. Find out what the scriptures say about it. It may say a lot. It may say a little. But whatever it says, you need to go by that and do that. You see. Rather than make up your own rules and your own laws about this. Now, now we don't have, a, a, I don't want to take a lot more time on that this this morning because our time is far gone. But there are a lot of applications that can be made for this. And, and, and the what I want to under, help, want you to understand, I don't think I have it up on a chart is, you know, we say, well, we should not uh, sweat the details. We shouldn't sweat the details. Really? Who told you you shouldn't sweat the details? God never said anything like that. Old and new, he didn't say, don't sweat the details. That's what your heart is saying. That's what the world is telling you. No, you sweat the details. You find out how far detailed God does say about things in life, and then you do that. And when you don't do that, no, God may not break out against you that day and strike you dead, but there will be a price to pay down the road. And then the trouble is when people begin to pay that price, they do like Adam and Eve when Adam and Eve sinned, and they realized they were naked, they went out and got some bushes and made aprons for themselves. They should have went to God and let God help them. Figure out what God wanted. When, when God saw that, he made animal skins for them. But they made fig leaves for themselves. So people began to put fig leaves on themselves. All right, thank you very much for listening today.
will not take the time to look at some of these other things. Perhaps we'll do that another time. But I do appreciate your thinking because I, I believe this is an important lesson. It goes so much against what we're kind of culturally taught about religion that it's all about how we feel at the moment and doing what we would like to do and what we can give rather than what God says. I know most of you would probably agree with what I've said this morning. And so I challenge you even. You need to look at your own life and say, where is it that this attitude comes in in my way of thinking? And it probably does somewhere. We're going to sing this song that you see before you here, number uh, 714, Trust and Obey, as an encouragement invitation to you, if you're not a Christian, to become a Christian today. Repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. We can help you with that. Everything is ready to do that. Turn around, turn your life around. Be buried with Christ in baptism, washed, made new, and you can start that new life of following Him. Or perhaps this morning you already are a Christian and you, you would like us to pray with you about a sin or a problem in your life, something that you need help with or forgiveness for. We can pray with you about that. God can heal you and your brothers and sisters can help you. If you'd like that, us to help you with that, come down to the front row right now as we stand and sing.